Let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 4 for an introductory passage of Scripture to introduce the subject that I'd like to consider this morning and this evening. It is truly the flu season across the nation, and it's the flu season in our assembly. If you'll listen, I'll try to speak loud enough for you to hear me in spite of all the coughing, and it's not going to bother me. I'm thankful that you're here. I'm sorry that for those of you that are sick, partially sick, or all the way sick, are sick, and I hope that the Lord will restore you very soon to full health. Amen. These things are reminders that our lives are very fragile, and we have no strength of our own. Our breath is in our nostrils, and little microbes that you cannot see with the naked eye and can barely see unless you have a very powerful microscope are able to render the human body in a matter of minutes without strength, without hope, without any drive to do anything wondering if maybe death would be better than a serious flu. And it's to remind us of how frail and fragile we truly are. I want to say one thing first about our great God. Lest I be misunderstood by anyone or lest anyone be in despair, as we just sang in that hymn. But our God is not just fair, and I am thankful for that. Our God is not just just. Our God is not only holy and righteous. Our God is merciful. And we worship a God who has abundance of mercy. And the only reason we exist is for him to show his mercy in the universe by what he's doing, has done, and will do for us. That is why you exist. And this message this morning is to help us worship God as he truly is to help humble us so that we will cast off our sins and live holy for him so that our children will be established in a distinguishing mark of our church and that is that we are anti-free will and that we may see and glorify the great grace of God in the salvation of souls. Because you're tired and because you're sick and because the accommodations this morning are not all that comfortable, I will try to keep this relatively short. You pay attention, and I'll try to pay attention to my watch. But that's not the important reason we're here this morning. The reason we're here is to look into the Word of God and see what He has to say that we might know Him in truth. He is a God of truth. And we, he expects us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Yes. And we wouldn't want to worship him any other way. Amen. Else we'll be worshiping the figment of our own imagination. Yes. Daniel chapter 4. These are things that I've told you before, but our children must remember them. They tell us the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Whether it was or not, I don't really know and I don't really care. Right. Because it doesn't really matter. I haven't met anyone yet that knows Hebrew well enough to help me with a Hebrew Bible. When they tell me they have the Hebrew Bible, they don't really have the Hebrew Bible. They have something that's been translated and copied, or not translated, but copied so many times it's inferior to the King James Bible. If you copy something a thousand times, but you translate something once, that doesn't sound very inferior to me. I'll take the one translation. You say, but men can make mistakes when they translate. And I will say, men can make mistakes when they copy. Because there's no thinking when you copy. But in translation, there's a great deal of effort put forth to think 
about the words and their connections and what the rest of Scripture says in order to give us the Word of God. And all of that was to say Daniel chapter 4 was not written in Hebrew. Daniel chapter 4 was written in the language of the Chaldeans because it is a personal letter from King Nebuchadnezzar to all the people under his realm. And that's what makes this chapter unique and special in the Word of God. This is a king writing in the first person to his subjects to tell them what great things God had done toward him. It says it in verse 2. I thought it good. This is not Daniel writing. This is King Nebuchadnezzar writing. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. And the high God did work some things toward Nebuchadnezzar, and he wanted to tell the whole world about it. How much of the world? Verse 1 tells us, Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied unto you. There's his salutation. This is a precious chapter. This is a great king personally writing all the people, nations, and languages of the earth. You say, well, I don't know if the Japanese got a copy. That means Nebuchadnezzar didn't consider them part of the earth, and guess what? Neither did God. Don't give me that kind of stuff. There was a known world at this time, and the known world was the only world that God dealt with at this time. It was the world that touched upon the borders of the nation of his people, and that was Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, God said that he set all the bounds of all the nations according to the bounds of Israel. And if you weren't close to Israel, you weren't important enough to warrant attention in the mind of God. Because he was dealing only with that nation. He said, of all the families of the earth, the only have I known. Israel were his chosen people, and unless you were close so that you could be connected to them, there wasn't any reason to take recognition that you even existed. Right. Now you say, that's not fair. What about the great spirit and all those naked savages hunting buffaloes on the North American continent? What about them? God ignored them. Right. You say, that isn't fair. He cre- this is all part of the purpose this morning. I want you to think about the great God of heaven. He does not need man, and he does not owe man anything, anything. Daniel chapter 4, look at what Nebuchadnezzar says as he gets warmed up in verse 3 of this letter to all peoples, languages, and nations. How great are his signs, exclamation point, and how mighty are his wonders, exclamation point. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. There's Nebuchadnezzar confessing and worshiping the God that we worship this morning. He says in verse 4 in the first person, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house. And from there, we get the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar. God admits in this chapter, through Daniel his prophet, that Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king that he'd ever had on this earth. He was a great tree. All the birds of the air and all the animals of the field found refuge in his branches or under his branches. And that was the whole earth found help and sustenance from King Nebuchadnezzar out of his capital city of Babylon, out of the Babylonian Empire. This chapter we have in the Word of God about these events. Nebuchadnezzar thought too highly of himself. And it would have been easy to think highly of yourself. We've never seen power like Nebuchadnezzar had. Our poor commander-in-chief 
has to ask permission to be able to take a vacation. Our poor commander-in-chief gets in trouble for being photographed with our soldiers because he was holding a tray with a turkey that had been baked only for display instead of for being eaten. And so he's called in question for all sorts of things like that. No one called King Nebuchadnezzar in question for anything. Amen. He was a great king. There is a saying that says that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, there's only been one man on earth that really had absolute power, and that was King Nebuchadnezzar, and so it would have corrupted him. And so when we read here, we find a man who thinks kind of highly of himself. And so the Lord took him down. The Lord took him down and put him out to pasture for seven years. For seven years, he was out in the field, and his hairs grew out like eagle's feathers, and his nails grew out like bird's claws. The Lord God judged that man and put him out to pasture for seven years. Now, I want to say something to you. This school, this seminary, that God sent Nebuchadnezzar to was a seven-year program. He got his Bachelor of Arts degree in theology. Then he got his Master of Divinity degree. And then he got his Doctor of Theology degree. He was in a seven-year higher education program of the Most High. Do you understand me at all? This man went to seminary to be taught by God himself, to be taught about the true and living God, and we are about to read his commencement address. Do you want to read it? This is what a man says after he has spent seven years with the Most High. And I get excited about this. Amen. You know, there are men going to seminary and getting bachelor's and master's and, and doctorate degrees in theology that don't know the God of the Bible. But here's a seven-year program that works. And it works. This is what the man had to say as he graduated. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 34. And at the end of the days, that is the seven years. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven. And mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? He then explains that God had preserved his kingdom for him in that 36th verse, and he concludes his letter to all peoples, nations, and languages with verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Amen. This is a man who goes to school where the Lord God is the teacher. And this is what he comes out believing. And this is what we believe, brethren. And this is what we have recorded in our textbook by the Holy Spirit of God so that we can know the true and living God. This is a seminary degree that works. Look at the man. He says, I bless the Most High 
And that's why we're here together, to worship God this morning. I praised and honored him that liveth forever. That's why we're here together. He says in verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. In the mind of this God, all the inhabitants at the present time, that's a little bit over six billion. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Nothing. They are of no value to the Most High. They are nothing. Right. Now that is not acceptable language today. But this is a man who learned the truth about the human race. Amen. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed. Their reputation is nothing. Because in comparison to the Most High God, we are nothing. Right. We are simply vessels of clay that he has made as a potter with clay. We are nothing in comparison to him. We have nothing to speak of, to brag of, to claim before this great God. And here is a man who knows the truth about the human race. You are not special. Right. You poor little children that are still attending the public zoo, and if your father has made that choice, that's okay as long as he teaches you and brings you here to hear the truth. You are not special. That's right. God is special. Amen. Your reputation is nothing. Right. His reputation is the high king of heaven. Amen. All whose ways and works are truth. And he's able to obey someone who thinks that they're special. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was special. And in comparison to us, he was special. But God put him down into the field like an animal. Right. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will among the inhabitants of the earth and in the army of heaven. He doeth according to his will, Daniel 4.35. And that brings us to what we want to study today. And that is the will of God, the will of man, and this so-called idea of free will. Nebuchadnezzar learned in his seminary degree that God does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. It is God's will that is obeyed in heaven, and it is God's will that is fulfilled on earth. God's will in heaven included the creation of the devil himself as Lucifer, the anointed cherub of God, the highest ranking angel in heaven. And when he disobeyed, which was all according to the purpose and plan of the living God, he lost his office and was cast out of heaven. That was no surprise to the Most High God. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven. The army of heaven are the principalities and powers of the angelic beings, and the highest one of them sinned against him by his wise plan. He did not make Lucifer sin, but he certainly planned the sin of Lucifer, intended the sin of Lucifer, and used the sin of Lucifer, and he put him down because he shall get glory forever over his enemy, the devil, who said, I will be like the Most High. You, you aspire to be like the Most High, and he will put you down. If you aspire to be the servant of the Most High, he will lift you up. I hope you'll remember that lesson. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. We exist by the will of God. Amen. We are sustained by the will of God. We are kept by the will of God. And our eternal destiny is by the will of God. And that is what the Bible teaches. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. There will be not one less saved than the will of God intended to save, and there will, be not, there will not be one more saved 
than the God of heaven intended to save. Amen. Because he doeth according to his will. The angels had no second chance. They had no redeemer. They had no savior. They sinned once, and the high king of heaven, who doeth his will among the army of heaven, cast them out of heaven, reserved them in chains unto everlasting judgment in the great day. Amen. This is the will of God. This is the will of God, and it is a distinguishing mark of our church, and we want our children established in it, and we want to be established in it, and we want to be humbled before it, Amen. that we would cast ourselves upon the mercy of God right. and beg him through the Lord Jesus Christ to have mercy upon our souls. Amen. And there's plenty of mercy there, brethren. Amen. As we sang this morning, I hope that you love reading through the word of God and finding some sweet promise there that you can light upon right. and find comfort for your soul, lest you be in despair. There's no reason for us to be in despair. We can be filled with hope, strength, and glory because there is so much grace with the Most High. You wouldn't want to hear about him. You wouldn't want to submit to him, nor would you want to worship him unless he's already exercised his will on your behalf, and that is giving you a new heart that would love him. Because though he is so great, men and angels rise up in rebellion against him, even though they know their rebellion is fruitless, they rise up against him in rebellion. The devil did it, and our first parents did it. Can you believe that? Our first parents stood up after they sinned in the Garden of Eden and blamed one another and hid from the Lord God instead of running out there in the cool of the evening and grabbing him by the ankles or whatever he allowed them to see and begging for mercy from the Most High. They did not do that, and no man will do that unless God has already exercised his will toward him. God's will. All, let's first of all deal with God's will this morning for a few minutes. All things in heaven and earth exist and continue by the will of Jehovah God. Amen. The will of a being is that faculty and power of his mind to make a choice. All things exist by the power and faculty of almighty Jehovah God to bring them into existence, and to sustain them and keep them in existence. You are here by the choice of God. And that fundamental, basic, first principle of life is the beginning of wisdom. Right. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you want to start getting wise? Lay hold of this simple principle and live by it. Right. I exist by the choice of God which brings you all the way back to the first cause and God in our universe, and how will your life serve him because he made a choice for you to exist. Now, I know I make this point sometimes, but I want you to remember it, and I haven't run into anyone else that likes to make it. And that is this. Your existence is something rather personal. I, I think that my existence is kind of personal. I think I should have been asked whether I want to exist before someone chose to make me exist. Don't you agree with me? Don't you think that it's only reasonable that since my existence has brought pain into my life, and if I'm sent to hell, it's going to bring a whole lot of pain into my life, that I should have been asked first, do you want to exist? Don't, don't you think that'd be fair and reasonable? But the Most High doesn't operate that way. Right. He made a choice. Jonathan Crosby is going to exist, and he didn't ask me. Now, how can your mind even get a, a hold a little bit of that power? 
See, nobody likes to talk about this because it just renders us absolutely nothing in right. his sight. Nothing. He did not ask you if you even wanted to exist. Amen. Then he didn't ask me how tall I wanted to be. And that really has torqued me a long time. <laughs> I speak as a fool. I hope, listen, parents, go home and help your children understand what the pastor said. What parents do we get? What nation are we born in? <laughs> What generation do we arrive in the history of this world? How intelligent are we? What opportunities we're going to have? How coordinated are we? Are we going to be made fun of in phys ed class because we stumble and trip over ourselves and we're the last one picked for war ball? Do you know all the pain you've gone through in your life? The blessed God should made that choice. Right. He didn't ask you how tall you wanted to be, how good looking, how intelligent, how coordinated, what kind of opportunities you're going to get in life. I want to tell you about a being with power. Right. Think on it. Mm -hmm. Selah. Amen. He's worthy of our worship. Amen. He is a great creator God. Right. Now let's move to a second point that everyone needs to understand. One, you are here by the choice of God. You are not an accident. Do you know how the world gets rid of the choice of God? We're here by evolution. An explosion of matter resulted in us. They get rid of that sovereign will that is over us, the will of God. The second point is, why did God create us? The first one is that he did. The second one is why he created us. And we know that from the Bible, don't we? Let's look at Proverbs 16.4, such a basic verse. Many of you know it by heart. I wish everyone did, and I wish our children all knew it. Why do we exist? Why did God make that choice to bring us into existence? Do you know it? Proverbs 16.4. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. That verse isn't taught anymore. The Lord hath made all things for himself. And if you're wondering, well, that can't extend to the wicked. That just must mean the good people. That just must mean the pretty birds. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. That is why God created for himself. He will get pleasure from every single one of his creatures. How does he get pleasure from a bluebird? He gets pleasure from a bluebird when you and I walk outside and see a bluebird and we say to one another, look at the color blue on that bird. Man can't even paint something so blue. And there's a great God in heaven who's looking out over the entire universe realizing he made that dumb little bird that came out of an egg so perfectly and gloriously blue for us to worship him for his ability to paint. He gets glory from every creature. He's made it all for himself. The bird was not made to make the man happy. The bird was made to make the God glorious. Amen. Don't ever get confused about that. There, most of the world believes that, the earth, that those who believe in creation, most of the Christian world that believes in creation thinks that the world is for our enjoyment. All things were made for the glory of God. For his pleasure they are and were created. Re Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. 
Thou art worthy. Now, why would this, do you understand why this verse is worded the way it is? Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. If God created everything for his own pleasure, and we are simply in our personal existence for the pleasure of God, then he is worthy of our giving him honor and power and glory. I hope you understand how Revelation 4.11 fits together. Angels were created before men were created for the glory of God. You say, but what about the ones that sinned against him? How did they end up being for the glory of God? Because he's going to crush their rebellion and show his wrath and his power and his justice in judging them for sinning against him when he had given them the loftiest positions of privilege in the universe. He'll get the glory out of them. You say, well, what about the ones that obey him? He's going to get pleasure out of them because we talk about them and we get to witness them always doing the will of God in heaven. That's why the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, because those angels up there, they have eyes within and without on the front side and the back side, and they have six, three pair of wings, and they have spheres under their feet so that they can roll straight forward in any direction. They don't have to turn around to go do the will of God if he tells them to do something behind them because behind them is in front of them and in front of them is behind them. Do you understand that about angels? They're always doing the will of God. They have wheels within wheels. Ezekiel tells us about them under their feet. What's a wheel within a wheel but a sphere that it can roll in any direction without turning? You say, are you sure about that? No. That's as close as I can explain the book of Ezekiel to you about angels with wheels within wheels. But I know what I'm... Listen, go read it. Right. They go straight forward in any direction as soon as God says go. And so when I read wheel within a wheel, going straight forward in any direction when God says go, it sounds like a sphere to me. In flaming fire, going to do whatever God says. Amen. And so we look at those creatures, and they're in this room right now. And I'll bet they want to show us their wheels. And they will someday, very soon. Yeah. They're in, they hear every word that I'm saying. And they can tell how asleep you are just by looking at your faces. He made those angels. The God, God chose to have angels. He right. didn't need them. One thing the Bible teaches us about himself is that he is independent. He doesn't need creatures to fulfill him. He is perfect in and of himself. I am that I am. Right. There's nothing in the Bible about an incomplete God. He is complete in and of himself. And you should, love, you should love the only being that is that way. He is incredibly superior to all other creatures. I am that I am. That's his name. That describes him. That defines him. I am eternal. I had no help being what I am, and I need no one to be what I am. I am independently happy in and of myself. I am perfectly pleased with myself. There is nothing lacking in my existence. But I want to display it. Right. I'm going to show it. So he created angels. Some of them will be judged with everlasting punishment for their disobedience, and some have been preserved by his mercy in their state of purity, and they will worship him throughout eternity. And then he created man, some men, 
will be the praise of his wrath and his power, according to Romans 9, 22, which we'll see before the day's out, and some will be vessels of mercy for the praise of his mercy throughout eternity. Amen. And brethren, if you have any love toward him at all this morning, if you despise evolution and you love a creator God like this and his son, Jesus Christ, he has chosen you to be a vessel of mercy. Right. Why do elephants have long noses? Because God chose for elephants to have long noses Amen. so that when fathers take their children to zoos and see an elephant with a long nose, they say, children, look what God did to this animal. Look what he did. He pulled his nose out eight feet, put little fingers on the end of it. We go and we glorify God for the elephant. For the giraffe, he gave it a long neck. We look at that horse-like creature that walks around with its 12-foot neck, eating leaves 17 feet up off a tree. And we look at that and we say, God, you are great. Amen. You can make one animal with a long nose. You can make another animal with a long neck. And you are great. All things were made for him. Amen. And you, you can have a happy and successful life if you'll fulfill your role by seeing God in everything. Right. And I don't mean pantheism where God is everything. Now, that is really stupid. God is the creator over everything. But the things he's created are for us to worship him. He makes that elephant, he makes that giraffe, and he makes the baboon. And you can glory and you can laugh, and he doesn't care which you do, as long as you enjoy what he created and realize that man can make nothing like it that will reproduce itself with those same characteristics. Right. He is glorious. Yes. And it's God's will that all these things exist. Amen. He didn't create the world because man was wandering around looking for a place to live. He created the world first, then he created man on the earth, and man was created for his glory. Amen. You don't need to wonder how far his will extends into the affairs of the world. Amen. Turn to Matthew chapter 10, and let's get a little hint. Matthew chapter 10, how far does God's will extend into this world? Matthew 10 will tell us. Matthew 10 and verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? Sparrows are worthless birds. They're, nu they're nuisances to us. But the Lord God takes recognition of them. The Lord Jesus Christ here picks the most worthless creature that was readily known by all these Jews. Sparrows. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. The will of Almighty God extends to every single sparrow because it says not one of them shall fall on the ground without your father being in control and government of that event. It does not mean without your father knowing about it. Because if it was just God's knowledge of a sparrow falling, that would be of no comfort to his elect in the next two verses. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Yes. And the point is, God will protect us and help us. Not that he just knows that we're in pain. He will help us, just like he takes care of every single sparrow. That is how far the will of God extends, and that's what we believe. And they can call us whatever they wish. They can call us fatalists if they want to. They can call us antinomians if they want to. They can call us absoluters if they want to. But God's will extends right down to every single sparrow. Amen. How You say, but what about my life? Well, here's how James taught us to pray. 
if the Lord will, we will do this or that. You say, well, what's this or that? It's this or that, whatever you want to make it. If the Lord will, we will do this or that. You try to do something right now that God isn't going to let you do. Try it. You can't do it. You cannot do it. Because whatever you choose to do, this or that, the Lord's will is going to be fulfilled. And what the, what, how we're supposed to pray is, Lord, I'm purposing to do this or that. Let your will be in favor upon this or that that I'm about to do. And the example there was going into such and such a city and continuing there a year and buying and selling and get gain. It was, it was the attitude of a trader to making money. Right. Lord, I'm going to go into such and such a place. I've picked this city because it seems to have the best economy, and I'm going to sell this thing. Let your will bless me. Right. If the Lord will, we will do this or that. Because if it's not God's will for you to make money in that city, you're going to come back and be looking on the map for a new city and something new to sell. And so we totally submit ourselves to the will of God. My point right here is, simple, is this simple. How far does God's will extend into our lives? This or that. That's how far. We exist because God made a choice. That, that is so overwhelming if you stop and meditate on that. You exist because God made a choice. You say, no, I exist because my parents made a choice. Oh, forget it. Forget it. Do you know how many times your parents tried and you didn't result? You exist because God made a choice. Therefore, we owe him everything. You have heard me pray that, Lord, we are twice yours because he has created us by the choice of his will and he has saved us by the choice of his will. We owe him everything in our lives twice over. We owe him everything for creating us, and we owe him everything for saving us. Mankind exists by the choice of God. Do you want to see the choice? Look at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. God makes choices. God has a will. He has the faculty and power of making choices, and he made choices about our existence. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image. There's God. There he is, the triune, blessed trinity of God that we say in 1 John 5, 7 is God the Father, God the Word, and God the Holy Spirit speaking among themselves, the three parties of the Godhead in one God. Let us make man in our image, not in our images, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And this was God's choice. This is why you exist. And it doesn't matter what PETA says. All the animals and the fish and the birds were made for man to have dominion over them and to use them. If we want to take one species and kill every single one of it and strip it so that our women can wear their fur, their feathers, or their claws, God gave them to us for that purpose. Amen. Sorry, PETA. 
people for the ethical treatment of animals. I wish PETA would get involved in the ethical treatment of humans. Amen. Maybe they would have some demonstrations against abortion instead of worrying about the spotted owls and the little baby seals. Listen, little baby seals might make good soup. And if little baby seals make good soup, then men ought to make soup out of little baby seals. Because God made little baby seals for man to use. Do you know how high they'd hang me? It's too bad. This is the word of God. Those things were made for us. I'm glad Daniel Boone went around with a coonskin cap on his head, showing what he did to those striped furry little creatures. He cooked them on a stick and put their skin on his head. Seriously, this is what God made them for, but I want, listen, I'm getting off track and I'm sorry because my track is this. Look where we came from. God, God speaking to himself, let us make. Let's choose to make something. So, it says so, doesn't it? What does that so result from? That so that is in verse 27, so God created. It results from the choice that he made. Amen. He chooses beyond that. He looked down in Genesis chapter 6. 1,500 years later, he looked down in Genesis chapter 6 and he said, this race is so wicked and so perverse, I'm going to drown the entire race with a flood of water. God chose to do that. Men do not like to think about it or talk about it. Some of you can remember a sermon I did a long time ago, and I'll not even remind you by tapping on my pulpit. I checked that young man in prison this past week to see if he remembered that sermon, but he didn't. It may have been before his time, but I hope that you can remember that there were things bouncing up against the side of that ark because the whole earth drowned in that flood. No one wants to think about it. But I want to tell you something. If you would think about those things, all of a sudden the doctrine of salvation in the New Testament is pretty easy to believe. If you read the whole Bible from beginning to end, you'd believe the whole Bible. But when you dive into the middle and find just one verse and you say the rest of them don't really count because this one's the gospel in a nutshell, you're in a problem. John 3.16 is not the whole gospel. John 3.16 is one verse out of 31,173, and it better be kept in that subordinate role. And when it's in that subordinate role, it is glorious because it's God's love for his elect, which take on meaning. If God loves every member of the human race and most of them end up in hell, his love is not very meaningful. God made a choice, and he makes choices through life. He made choices to drown the whole earth and reduce the population of earth back to eight. He let it expand for 1,556 years while men were multiplying and living very long lives, some of them living over 900 years. And then he, he brought the population back to eight because Noah found grace in his eyes. Brethren, there's grace in the eyes of this most high Lord. We read in Psalm 66, his eyes, his eyes behold the nations, his eyes behold some men in grace and mercy. And thank him for that. Amen. Beg him for his mercy. No one has ever begged the living God for mercy that did not receive it. Do you know why? Because the only ones that would ever beg for it are those that he's already shown it to. He's already shown it in their hearts, and that's why they would even ask for it. He set the boundaries of all the nations of the earth. He sends fruitful seasons into our hearts. All the nations exist, and they live where they do, and some of them live in ridiculous places. Our sister Tanya, who lives in Russia, up there north of Moscow, that's a ridiculous place to live. Do you know how, dark, do you know how early it gets dark this time of year? You know, about 3.30. Do you know what time it gets late in the morning? Oh, about 9.30. 
Isn't that a precious existence? Do you like it dark all the time? How do you like it 40 below zero? Do you like that? You know, you're all trembling at 20 above. How about 40 below? Why do people live up there? I think that's ridiculous. They want to know why we like to live where we sweat. Because God set the boundaries of all those nations, that's why. And guess what? They're very content with where God put them to live. You know, nations don't migrate. All the Russians didn't decide, hey, the equator sounds like a better place. Let's go down to Brazil, carve ourselves out a place in the jungle, and live there. Get a tan. They don't do it because God set the boundaries. And all of this is not to be funny. It's to think about the power of God and the choices he makes over the human race. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. He, tell, he brings them into existence. Some are short, some are tall, some are skinny, some are fat, some are ugly, some are good looking, some are intelligent, some are dumb. Some live up there by the North Pole and some live at the equator. He did it all. Some of them speak intelligent languages and have a number system and some do not. Some are still blowing little darts through tubes at monkeys called blowguns. Some are throwing curved sticks at rabbits. Why? Because God made choices. Right. And you better thank him for everyone that was made for you. Amen. Because everyone sitting in here is blessed. How do we even describe it in the blessings that we have? I like our climate here. I like the parents that God gave me. I like the children God's given me. Where do I start? Where do I stop in all the good things God has given me? And you better humble yourself before that God and beg him for his continued mercy and thank him for all the mercy he's already shown you and he will bless you. This is delighting in the Lord because of everything he's given you. Amen. God gave you existence by the purpose of his own will. The pleasure and pain that you've had in your life is by the purpose of his own will. Even when you've sinned, it's his punishment that brought the pain into your life and disadvantages of time and eternity are by the choice of God. Right. I want you to look at Deuteronomy 29, 29 with me. Deuteronomy 29, 29. We looked at a few illustrations of the fact that God has a will. I want you to show you that God has two wills. Because I'm teaching you this, this weekend is teaching you about the will of God, the will of man, and free will. Right. Here's the will of God in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In that verse is contained for us the two wills of God. God has a will that are his secret things. Those secret things are the things that are going to happen. And they will certainly happen. And they all will happen. And not one of them will fail to happen. Amen. The revealed things are what he's written in his Bible that we are supposed to do actively, voluntarily, and cheerfully. It's his commandments. Thou shalt not kill. But sometimes it's the will of God for men to kill. Let me give you an example. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, and it was the will of God for him to die on the cross of Calvary. It was God's will. It was God's will that Romans and Jews together would combine to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And yet, they violated his written will to do that. Because his written will is, thou shalt not kill. And they killed an innocent man. Look at Acts chapter 2 with me to see it in writing how the apostles would speak to this fact. God has two wills, and it helps us understand if we will realize, some, some men call it his decorative will versus his permissive will. His decorative will being what he has decreed, and, or his preceptive will, what precepts he's given on what we're supposed to do. Here's Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. Here's the Apostle Peter explaining the crucifixion. Acts 2.23, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You Jews were wicked in killing the Lord Jesus Christ because you broke the commandment, thou shalt not kill. But it was God's determinate counsel and his foreknowledge that brought Jesus Christ into this situation where you could and did do that to him. Those are the two wills of God. And we want to know both of those wills. See, the one will is, if the Lord will, we will do this or that. Because, see, he hasn't told us whether we can go into easily and trade for a year and buy and sell and get gain or not. It's not in the Bible. He hasn't told us that we can go to Asheville and do it. It's not in the Bible. So this other, this other will, when we say, if the Lord will, is his secret things. And we're just asking for him and his secret things to have favor upon us as we go into this foreign town to trade for a year that we might make gain and not lose our shirts. So we submit ourselves to the will of God and ask him to have mercy on us in his will. That's his secret thing because we don't know what it's going to be until it's revealed by history. Right until we're on the other side of it, then we know what his will was. Then there's the will in God's word that tells us that before we go into such and such a city, we ought to seek safety in a multitude of counselors. That's the will of God. But see, it's the things that are revealed that we and our children ought to do, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 told us very plainly. Remember Joseph's brethren? Joseph's brethren hated Joseph because they were jealous of him because Jacob loved Joseph more than he loved them. Jacob was by his favorite wife, Rachel. Jacob loved Joseph. The other brothers were jealous. They were wicked. They had the hearts of Cain. And they sold their brother into slavery down into Egypt. Now, years later, when those brothers stood before Joseph and he was sitting on the throne of Egypt, he explained to them, ye meant it for evil. You sinned in what you did against me, but God meant it for good. God overrode your sinful intentions and used them to get me down here into Egypt in order for me to save us all alive as a family this day. Now that is a great God. Amen. That is a great God who can give us his will, and we are to obey it. And you may never disobey it and say, well, I'm still keeping the secret will of God. That is described in the Bible as a sure indication of your future damnation. Right. Go read Romans chapter 3 and about verse 8. Let us do evil that good may come. Only reprobates think that way. We never try to break the revealed will to keep his secret will. It's secret for a reason. You don't know what it is. This we know and we want to keep it because it's what God has revealed to us. I am trying to teach you about the will of God. Look at Job 23. Job chapter 23 about the secret things 
of God. God is full of secrets appointed for each of us. Right. We're just living them out mm -hmm. for his great display of his own glory. You say, well, I'm going to mess it up by sinning. Oh, you think so? You think you're going to mess it up by, singing, by sinning? He's going to get glory out of you then in a painful way. He could be getting glory out of you in a pleasant way by you singing praises to him. He'll bring his chastening rod over you and he will still get glory. You are not going to thwart him at all. Job 23 and verse 14. Uh, well, let's get verse 13 too. But he is in one mind. And who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. You know, I've heard some men try to preach from this verse and say, the doctrine that God has two wills can't be true because of Job 23, 13, because it says he is in one mind. This text is describing his secret will. He's in one mind about his secret will. He's not all confused and wondering what he's going to do. It's all established and settled, and Job knows it. 23, 13, but he is in one mind, and who can turn him? What God has purposed to do in his secret will, he is settled on the matter, and you're not going to undo it. You're not going to change it. He is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. For he performeth the thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Amen. There's the sovereignty of God. Right. He is performing the thing appointed for me. God chose me as an object lesson of him bringing a man down, and he's got a whole lot more things just like that for me. And, and bless the Lord, they included great mercy toward Job in the end of his life, didn't it? It included giving Job twice what he had in the beginning, and all of that had been purposed by the Lord God to show some mercy to Job in the end for being the unwilling object of his object lesson. Because Job did not find a great deal of pleasure in Job's in chapters 3 through 42, but God gave him some pleasure in the end. Many such things are appointed for all of us. God may reveal a secret sometimes. You know, Daniel revealed secrets to Nebuchadnezzar, to Belshazzar, to Darius, to others. Daniel revealed a lot of secrets because that's what prophets did. Things that weren't recorded became recorded because prophets told what was about to happen. Never forget those two wills of our great God. His decorative will, when I say decorative, that means the will of his decrees. What he has decreed will come to pass. What he has decreed will happen. That's what some people call it. I just call it his secret will because it says secret in Deuteronomy 29, 29. We don't know what God's going to do. Some things we do because he's told us. But most of, most of what he's going to do we don't know because he hasn't told us. He's God. You know, the Bible even says that the angels in heaven don't know some of the things he's going to do. Right. And even, even the Son doesn't know some of the things he's going to do. The Son, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ in his human nature, does not know for certain some of the dates of some things God is going to do. Because they're God's secrets. But he will do them, most certainly. The revealed things are all the things that we are supposed to do intelligently, obediently, and cheerfully and submissively to his revealed will. Right. He is just able to accomplish both at the same time. Amen. And he does it gloriously. Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10. I know that some of you enjoy this passage and, and for good reason. Isaiah 10 describes using a man who is breaking his revealed will 
to punish a people who are breaking his revealed will, all the time fulfilling his secret will. Now that is good. There's only one being that can do that. And then he can punish that man for the arrogance that he had in fulfilling the secret will of God. Because that man didn't know he was fulfilling the secret will of God. He just thought he was expanding his empire because he was a proud, greedy king. Isaiah 10 and verse 5. This is history. This is what your children need to learn about history. You want to learn about the movements of nations? Here's a movement of a nation, and God tells us all that he was doing by using a nation this way. Isaiah 10 and verse 5. O Assyrian, this is the king of Assyria, a powerful nation at this time in the history of the world. This is a little before Babylon. Babylon exists, but it's not the world power yet. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. O Assyrian, you are just my tool for whipping up on some nations. Don't you know that, O king of Assyria? You are just my tool. Verse 6. I will send him against an hypocritical nation. Who was that? Israel. I will send him against an hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now, did God actually tell the king of Assyria to do these things, or did he just let the greed of his heart go that he wanted to beat up on neighboring nations? Right. He gave him a charge in his secret will. Are you, are you all following me? This is the history that we want to read. Right. You know, a tyrant that our nation was seeking was captured last night. Do you know why? Because it was time. Right. It was God's time to deliver him up to our nation. The issue, whatever issue you want to raise about whether it was righteous or not for us to even be over there, that isn't the point at all. The point is, why did we get him last night? Because God said, last night was the time right. to get him. And God delivered him up. And Allah didn't deliver him. Amen. The Lord Jehovah delivered him up. Right. He may have been praying to his crescent moon, but it didn't do very much good. Maybe his crescent moon has never seen an M1 Abrams at, at full speed with the earth shaking and the mosque rattling. Maybe Allah had never seen that before. But the Lord God delivered him up. Right. I wish we always read history and we always read the newspaper in the light of what I'm reading to you right now. Always. This, right. this is how history works. He set, doesn't the Bible say he sets up one nation? Then he puts them down. He puts up one ruler, then he puts them down because he's God and he raises them up and puts them down according to his own will. Right. Do you understand verse 6? I wish I could elaborate on every word and phrase, but the Lord God is saying, the king of Assyria is my rod for the chastening of a hypocritical and wicked nation, the people of my wrath, Israel. That's verse 6. And I've given this king a charge that he is going to come in and whip on Israel. Verse 7, Howbeit, he meaneth not so. He isn't out trying to obey the secret will of God, nor is he out trying to obey the revealed will of God. This man is just greedy. 
Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. He is, this king is set on world expansion of his empire. That's all he's thinking. There's another nation I can get my hands on. He sets his war council down. What information do you have about Israel? I'd like to take them. You know, we can use these treasures. We can put this kind of tribute on them. I can expand my empire. That's all he's thinking in his heart and in his head. But God's accomplishing a number of purposes with him. Love this passage. For he saith, this is how he's reasoning. In verse 8, are not my princes altogether kings? Hey, I'm a great king. My princes are equal to or greater than other nations' kings. Is not Kelno as Carchemish? Is not Hamath as Arpad? Is not Samaria as Damascus? Won't these cities that I want to take be easy in my sight, just like other cities that I've destroyed? As my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Here's a king reasoning this way. I have whipped up on nations before, and they've had some pretty impressive-looking gods. When I got into town and got into their temple, they had some very impressive idols. And from what my spies are telling me about Jerusalem, they ain't got nothing in comparison to... I know what I just said. They ain't got nothing in comparison to what these other nations have had. He's, he's bloating himself up that he's able to take on any god because of his success with pagan gods in the past. And when he looks into Israel's little temple, all he sees there is the little Ark of the Covenant. There's no great big idol. So he thinks they're going to be easy. He's boasting about himself. Right. Verse 11, Shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria, that was the capital of Israel, and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols. Just one problem. The Israelites that had their capital at Samaria did worship idols, and the Jews at Jerusalem weren't always worshiping idols. They were the descendants of the tribe of Judah, and they did worship God from time to time, but not all the time. Okay, verse 12. Wherefore, this is the Lord now telling us about his secret will. Wherefore, it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, when God is done with his secret will by using the king of Assyria to chasten the nation of Judah, when I'm done, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. When I get done using him, now do you understand what I'm saying? When I get done using him, then I'm going to punish him for the attitude he had while I was using him. You say that isn't fair. Don't, don't, please don't say that. Right. What would Paul say to any statement like that? God forbid. God forbid that we should ever question or attack the integrity of the Most High. I think it's very fair. If I, some man that wants to talk about his great conquests of idols, he deserves to go down when he didn't worship the Creator God that had made him. Here is the Lord telling us his secret. My secret is to use the king of Assyria and his greed to punish my rebellious children of Israel. But when I'm done punishing them and they've been chastened enough, they've got enough stripes with my rod from the king of Assyria, then I'm going to punish the king of Assyria for getting haughty 
about the whole thing. Verse 13, here's the Lord talking about this arrogant man. For he saith, by the strength of my hand I have done it. If you'd have looked at the Assyrian army, what would you have said? By the strength of his hand he did it, because they were a mighty nation. But did he really do it by the strength of his army? Nope. He did not do it by the strength of his army. This is, this is history right here. This is history. It's his story of moving and manipulating the nations for his own purposes. By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. The Lord God is quoting the heart of the king of Assyria and how he thinks about himself. I'm a prudent man. It's my wisdom and my power. I have removed the bounds of the people. There used to be national boundaries. I've obliterated them in my great expansion. Verse 14, And my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people. And as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing, or opened the mouth, or peeped. Now is this pretty arrogant? Yep. Here is the king of Assyria saying, I took these nations like a woman going out to pick up eggs in the morning. No, the, a hen didn't move her wing, nor did anything even peep. And I robbed, I robbed nations as easy as someone robs a nest and takes an egg back for scrambled eggs. No one peeped against me. Verse 15, here's what God has to say. Amen. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? When a strong man takes an axe out into the woods and swings that axe by the strength of his back and his arms and brings a tree down, should the axe boast that it brought the tree down? The axe is an irrational piece of wooden metal that the great God was directing. Right. If the man with the axe does not approach the tree at the right angle and at the right speed and keep it up long enough, the axe isn't going to do anything even with a man. Right. Laid by itself, the axe is simply going to rust. Should the axe boast against him that heweth therewith? Should the axe tell the man that's using it, hey, I cut the tree down? This is God making fun of the king of Assyria. Amen. You think you're something? You're nothing but an axe in my hand to cut down my people Israel. Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? See, they didn't push a button on a power saw back in these days. They would take a saw and push it back and forth, which looks like you're shaking it. Shall a saw make fun of the man who's shaking it? Shall a saw talk like it's the one that took the tree down and not the man shaking it? Again, if you, put a saw, if you lean a saw up against a tree without a man shaking it back and forth, all it will do is rust. As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up, or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood. Here the Lord just continues on, a man holding a staff. Should the staff make fun of the man that's holding it? What good's a stick without the man who wields it intelligently and powerfully? Here the Lord makes fun of the king of Assyria. Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, 
send among his fat ones leanness. And it goes on to describe the judgment that was going to come on the nation of Assyria. Brethren, the will of God. This is the will of God. He raises up men. He puts men down. He uses men for his own purposes. And while he's using them, if they get arrogant, he then turns around and punishes them. There's only one cure for all of this if you don't want to be used by the Most High God for his own glory, and that is to humble yourself this morning, fall before him and beg for mercy, and examine yourselves and cast off your, your wickedness. As we read further in Daniel chapter 4 in another place, that there might be a lengthening of your tranquility. Amen. If you read that in Daniel chapter 4, break off your sins by righteousness. Have mercy upon the poor if the Lord might lengthen your tranquility. Don't ever get arrogant about any measure of success you've ever had. Don't ever presume on his mercy by thinking that you can sin against him. Let's humble ourselves before this great God whose will governs the universe. Before we leave this morning, let me tell you where free will came from. Free will came from the devil himself. In the Garden of Eden, the devil told Eve, if you eat the fruit off this tree, you will not surely die. It was eating that fruit that corrupted the will of man so that man's will no longer would or could choose God. The devil said, Eve, if you eat that fruit, thou shalt not surely die. And that is where the lie originated. We don't have to look to men like Jacobus Arminius of the 16th century, who's the father of Arminianism. We don't have to look to the monk Pelagius, who's the father of Pelagianism. These are two critical figures in history that promoted free will and the doctrine of free will. We go right back to what the Bible tells us, and it was the devil saying, thou shalt not surely die. You will still be intact if you eat the fruit off that tree. But in the day that they ate that fruit, they died. And it wasn't a physical death. It was a spiritual death where the heart of Adam and Eve was now black toward God, full of hatred and resentment toward him. When he came in the cool of the evening to talk to them, they hid among the trees of the garden instead of running out to repent of their wickedness. That is the fallen nature of man, children. And every one of us are born to parents, and we have the same black heart that is at enmity with God and will not obey God, hates God, loves sin, loves the devil, willingly gets in lockstep behind the devil and obeys him according to Ephesians chapter 2. The second thing the devil told Eve, if you'll eat the fruit off that tree, I'm going to tell you a secret. You're going to be just like God, knowing good and evil. I want you to get a free will out of this thing so that you can be just like God. You can be just like him if you'll follow me. And we still have the same lie today, and it's called free will. Two faults with it. Number one, man died in the Garden of Eden and does not have a will that is free, except free from righteousness. Man's will only sins and only chooses sin. Second, men think that they can be like the Most High and become his children by exercising their free will, just like the devil said in the Garden of Eden. But there have been Bible preachers since. Men like Enoch and Noah in the old times, all the way down through the Apostle Paul and preachers ever since that have got up and preached against the doctrine of free will by what the Bible says. And I'll have a whole lot more to say about it tonight. 
Because it's the will of God that gives mercy. It's the will of God that shows compassion. The Bible says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That is sovereignty. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's Romans 9.15. And the, the next verse says, So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. How do any of us ever get mercy in our lives? It was the choice of God before the world began that you would have the mercy of God in your life. Pure and simple. It doesn't need qualification. It is the will of God that brings mercy and compassion into your life. But there have been preachers ever since Enoch and Noah and others that have preached the truth about God's will being sovereign over this world, and they have been hated. I want to read to you a statement from the Council of Trent, and with this I'll finish. The Council of Trent was the largest and longest Roman Catholic council that ever took place in the middle of the 1500s, trying to find an antidote to what the Reformation was doing against their churches and their theology. And what they came up with were a set of anathemas. Their confession of faith was a set of anathemas, a set of curses against the doctrines that we love. I want to read one of them. Listen carefully, please. I'll read it slowly, and I'll try to read distinctly. This is what they said about our doctrine this morning. If anyone saith that since Adam's sin, the free will of man is lost and extinguished, or that it is a thing with only a name, yea, a name without a reality, a figment, in fine, introduced in the church by Satan, let him be anathema. Sounds like they heard me this morning. Because you know what? I'm not preaching anything new that hasn't been preached for 6,000 years by men who knew the word of God. And the Roman Catholic Church says, if anyone says that since Adam's sin, the free will of man is lost and extinguished, or the free will of man is just a joke without any power at all, or that the free will of man is the invention of Satan, let him be anathema. That's how much they hate what we believe. And that's where it came from, and that's the great mother church that has kept it up in all of its health throughout the last 2,000 years, the doctrine of free will. Man does not have a will that is free to choose or to reject God. He will always reject God unless it's the grace of God that draws him to the Son of God. No man can come unto me, Jesus said, except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And then we are nothing but the axe, the saw, or the staff. We've been brought by the power of a sovereign God who has chosen that our lives will be to his glory in the praise of his kindness and his grace throughout eternity. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word this morning. Amen.